0: To vintage Homicide, the true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We will bring you historic murders with a special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. All proceeds from this podcast will gladly benefit 501c3s. Suitable charities are selected by the hosts or by the listeners. Listeners may provide suggestions by contacting us at vintagehomicidepodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report. All opinions stated herein are strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. We are your hosts, Miss Ruby Wilde and Miss Mayday, and this is Vintage Homicide.
1: Hello, Miss Mayday. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Miss Ruby Wilde? I'm doing good. We are trying a new recording platform, so give us some feedback, let us know. Um, if it's up to par of what you guys are l- used to listening to us on, just giving it a go based on recommendations and because we're too cheap for expensive Zoom. <laughs> we don't make money on this podcast. <laughs> right.
0: So as a nonprofit, exactly, we're looking for some alternatives. So we're giving this a shot. It looks looks okay and we'll see how well it works for us. So yes. give us some We feedback. just figured
1: we'd warn you before
0: we get started. Okay, so technical okay. notes aside, what are we looking <laughs> at today?
1: In. Why did the phosphorus love a stick? Phosphorus love a stick? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Why? Because they made a perfect match.
0: Mm, okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that joke will make a lot more sense by the end of this episode, I'm telling you. Got it. <laughs> yes.
0: Nope. Yep. That makes sense to me. Okay.
1: Okay. <laughs> So we're going to jump right in. November 1st, 1885, at 930 Market in San Francisco, California, a woman named Cecilia Bowers had died. She had suffered from a terrible illness for a couple of months with no reprieve until she eventually gave up her fight at the age of 29. Her loving husband, Dr. J. Milton Bowers, who was 45, was by her bedside throughout all of her troubles. Cecilia's mother, a German immigrant, and her brother, Henry Benheon had also been there with her and had even called in more doctors for, you know, second and third opinions, just trying to do anything to save her. Those two doctors, along with Milton, agreed that she had passed from an abscessed liver. Now, Cecilia had not really had an easy life up until her death because she had already been married once before Milton. Her first husband was Sylvian Levy, and they married in 1871. Together, they had a daughter, Tilly. But this relationship didn't last, and the couple did divorce. Now, I couldn't find out what happened to Tilly further, because there was actually quite a few Tilly levies in the area, and I wasn't a 1,000% sure that Tilly was her legal name. So I tried my best, couldn't find it, and from what I did read, it does seem like Sylvian did remarry. But again, common name. It was really hard to track that one down. Okay. So we're going to have to leave them in the past. Now, Cecilia did find happiness again when she met and married Dr. Milton Bowers. Milton was born in Baltimore in 1843. He went off to study in Germany at the age of 16. He returned to America so he could serve in the Civil War in 1865, treating soldiers when they convalesced in Washington, D.C. In 1865, as a physician now, he graduated from the Electric Medical College in Chicago, and there he met his first wife, Fanny Hammett, in Chicago. She unfortunately also died prematurely in 1873. He chose instead of staying in Chicago to move to Brooklyn, New York, to start again. It was there that he met Teresa Shirk, who was his second wife. She was, from what all accounts described her as, was a wonderful soul, a beautiful actress. She was clever, and she had been a former patient of Milton's. Once the couple was together, they moved to San Francisco in July of 1874. And while there, Teresa published a novel in 1877 called The Dance of Life, an answer to the dance of death. Okay. It took me like forever to try and write that because my, my brain didn't want to unscramble it, but <laughs> it's just known as The Dance of Life. Okay. Now, unfortunately for Milton, his bad luck continued and his second wife, Teresa, also died prematurely at the Palace Hotel, January 29th, 1881. It took six months after her death for him to marry his third wife, Cecilia, July 19th, 1881. Hmm. So he wasted no time. Yeah. So this Uh is his wife, third wife. Third wife. Wow. Uh, He seems to be a serial monogamist with terrible luck on his wife's dying at -hmm. young ages. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, their marriage caused a riff in Cecilia's family because they did not like Milton, and they didn't approve of like their meeting, their marriage, the fact that it was only six months after his wife died. And so her family kind of like cut her off. Okay. And so they were together for four years, and that's when Cecilia's illness started bringing the family back together to support her. So they had really minimal communications before this terminal illness that she had. So after her time of death, she was sent to the San Francisco's coroner's office, And the coroner received an additional surprise in addition to her body, and that was an anonymous letter telling them that she did not die from natural causes and an autopsy should be performed. So... Okay. Okay. So now, while Cecilia was ill, Milton thought he needed more help around the house because obviously Cecilia had started to become bedridden. So he brought in a nurse, Charlotte Zeising, and... She was there helping the whole time. Now, Charlotte went to the coroner and said that Cecilia's final request was to not have an autopsy performed.
2: Hmm. So he's
1: got an anonymous note saying to do one, but he has what he assumes is firsthand knowledge of Cecilia not wanting one. Okay. Now, in addition to all of this, Milton had also taken out a large life insurance policy on Cecilia for just around a half a million dollars in today's money. And that was from the American Legion of Honor. And that was on November 2nd or sorry. And so that was before she died. Now, November 2nd, the day after she died. So all of this is happening at the same exact time, by the way. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm mentioning it all right now.
0: Yeah. And it all seems a little suspect.
1: A lot of it, because then on November 2nd, the day after she died, a man walked into the American Legion of Honor's insurance office and told them, do not pay out on the policy. Look into her death more. So you've got one saying don't do an autopsy and you have an anonymous letter and anonymous tipster saying do one. So they did one. Mm -hmm. The insurance company said that they were not going to pay out until there was an official cause of death certificate and everything was settled. So now Milton made a rush at planning and conducting his wife's funeral. Again, really suspicious. Mm -hmm. So because of everything that's leading into this to determine a cause of death and they told Milton that you know, we are doing an autopsy regardless. And he said, well, I already planned the funeral. So we will release her body back to you after services have been conducted for you to do the autopsy. Because back in the day, you know, you like you did kind of rush to get the body in the ground as they do start decomposing and things like that. Okay. So with all of that being said, they were like, okay, go ahead, have your service. We'll come and get the body. Uh, some sort of quote-unquote miscommunication happened, and the body was actually sent off to be buried. Okay. Yeah. So, they had to get an exhumation order, and that did happen, and the official autopsy was conducted with all these red lights blaring. Lo and behold, she had not died of natural causes. She had been poisoned with so much phosphorus that her stomach glowed in a dim room, along with the strong smell. Yes. So...
0: Basically, this meant that this was a phosphorus poisoning. Mm-hmm. Right. So, we're going to talk a little bit about phosphorus and how it could be used as a poison. So, phosphorus was and why it glowed. <laughs> so, yeah, curious thing about phosphorus. So, it was discovered by an alchemist, Hennig Brand, in 1669. He, ironically, and I don't know why people just did these random experiments, but he obtained it by boiling and condensing large quantities of urine until yes until a glowing substance was left behind which turned out to be phosphorus so who i don't know how mm-hmm. people think about these things but i guess it makes sense because he was an alchemist and like the whole point of an alchemist is to turn one element or one thing into another right like well, generally uh, and i guess
1: if you have enough like vitamin b12 in your system it does appear to glow
0: Yeah. So I don't know why he was messing around with his own urine, but he thought he had this idea, like what happens if I boil large quantities of urine? And lo and behold, he discovered phosphorus this way because that's what's left behind. So chemically as a compound and as an element, phosphorus has several kind of forms that have really unique and striking properties. So the two most common forms are white phosphorus and red phosphorus. White phosphorus looks as a waxy solid. So this is what was left behind from the urine. Okay. Now, white phosphorus is the least stable. It's highly volatile. It gradually will naturally just change to red phosphorus. And usually this is done just by time, and it can be accelerated by light and heat. So eventually, given enough time, white phosphorus will convert towards red phosphorus. Okay, But as it does that in that process, white phosphorus, because it starts converting to red phosphorus, will maybe appear yellow in color. So this is why it's also That's called-
1: That's This
0: urine. <laughs> 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 yeah. It's basically just the impurities. So like when you don't have pure white phosphorus and it's moving and changing towards red phosphorus, it appears yellow. So it's called also yellow phosphorus sometimes. Okay. But they're all the same. It's all the same. So, And this is just due to the exposure of oxygen. So as white phosphorus is exposed, it starts to convert. And this is what gives phosphorus this unique glow-in-the-dark quality. So when it's exposed to oxygen, because it's very volatile and not very stable, it will kind of glow in the dark. It glows sort of a green-blue, so kind of cool. And this is apparently what was reported and seen in... Body, right? When they did the autopsy, they could tell right. that it was glowing in the dark. It's also highly flammable and something referred to as pyrophoric, meaning that it is um, self igniting with contact with air. So it spontaneously combusts. So okay, then. it is not a very stable substance. So, which ironically is why it has been weaponized in the past. And white phosphorus is commonly used and was used as an additive in napalm, which was used in Vietnam, right? And in war. And then this odor that the coroners had recorded, right? When they had done the autopsy, the odor is that garlic smell. So it smells garlicky apparently when it starts to combust and just generally phosphorus has a has that characteristic garlic smell, apparently.
1: Okay. I don't know why. I just assumed it would smell like sulfur. Yeah. Even though it's not sulfur, but I just it's assumed not sulfur. it like sulfur. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's because we don't have any experience with it,
1: right? Like we're not going to just true. be using white phosphorus, but... And I'm not about ready to uh, filter out my own urine to figure it out. Yeah.
0: So apparently <laughs> when it does combust, it, it has that smell. And so I think if the body is full of it, it probably gives off this odor and in history it's used because it's highly toxic of course <laughs> it <laughs> was used as a poison so it in historically um it was used as a rat poison or an insecticide when you ingest it because this is something you're not supposed to do it causes severe vomiting and diarrhea It's your, this is the interesting fun fact about phosphorus poisoning in particular. um, Your vomit and your diarrhea can be described both as smoking, quote unquote, and quote unquote, luminescent. And it will have a garlic like odor. So these are the qualities of phosphorus that, like, we can definitively be like, oh, this was phosphorus because it's smoking because of the tendency to combust upon contact with oxygen, right? And it's luminescent because that's one of its properties. It just glows in the dark. It's luminescent and it has this garlic-like odor. So your vomit
1: and diarrhea will glow. I mean, unfortunately, that's really unfortunate, but it's also kind of cool.
0: Yeah. It's a weird fun fact. Yes. Other signs and symptoms of severe poisoning can include dysrhythmias. So your heart rate changes coma, hypotension, and death, obviously. So it is also highly dependent on the route of exposure. So if you ingest it or inhale it, you can experience abdominal pain, vomiting, difficulty breathing, and then extreme liver and kidney damage. But it also causes burns and tissue damage. So you'll see burns to the mouth and the esophagus and tissue damage along the gastrointestinal tract. It is can cause burns on your skin within minutes and hours so you really can't like come into contact with the physical substance of phosphorus directly you have to wear gloves when handling it but just in general it's extremely volatile right so it can just ignite spontaneously right. which can cause burns right so that's so crazy yeah so it's really not it's a nasty chemical it's not really meant obviously for ingestion a, a lethal, we'll come
1: back to that. Yeah.
0: We know this now. Now. <laughs> um, maybe not so much at the time when it was first discovered, right? Because we know how history has a weird way of trying to understand mm-hmm. things. And so the lethal dose of white phosphorus can depend also on how you're being exposed to it, but it's extremely toxic and even small amounts. So, as little as a few milligrams can cause severe harm or death. And yeah, it it can be detected in your blood. And so when you have elevated serum phosphate levels, it's indicative that you had an exposure. So again, in a postmortem situation. And although phosphate production is a normal byproduct of elemental phosphorus metabolism in humans, the normal phosphate concentration does not rule out an elemental phosphorus exposure. Okay, so... We can tell the difference, basically, in testing. And yeah, based on these characteristics, phosphorus has been used in a lot of different applications, like I said, as a poison because of its toxicity. Because of its um, glow-in-the-dark properties, it's been utilized that way. And also because it can self-ignite, as in your opening joke, it has been used (laughs) in matches, which
1: we can get to. Well, back to Milton, the gossip rule... Mill was uh, milling and he was arrested and a coroner's jury on November 12th, 1885 did believe that she had died from poisoning allowing Milton to be charged with uxoricide. Yeah, uh, Uxoricide. Uh, yeah, uxoricide. There we go. It's
0: a term that's really specific to the act of killing one's wife. Okay. It's derived from the Latin uxor, which means wife, and cide which comes from the Latin word caedere, meaning to kill. So, uxoricide is a specific type of homicide and falls under the broader category of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. And it is not as commonly used as other forms of homicide, but it is very specifically used to refer to cases where the victim is a female partner. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, because of all of this, That's when people started looking into his past and it came into light that two of his previous wives mysteriously died in young age. And in addition, there was rumors that Cecilia had suffered abuse at the hands of her husband. So that would, you know, bring in the charge of like the domestic violence. So Milton was brought to trial in April of 1886 when he proclaimed that as a medical doctor, he would never be so foolish as to poison Cecilia with phosphorus as he knew it would go everywhere in the body and that there were better untraceable methods that he could have used to poison her. Okay. Basically, his defense was that he was not idiotic enough to use this poison to poison his wife if he was trying to kill her. Okay. So if he was, had done it, difference. he would have yeah. done it differently. The the whole O.J. Simpson, if I had done it kind of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So, yeah. In addition, the couple did have a housekeeper, Teresa Farrell. She and the nurse had both taken his side in the trial. So the two women did testify on behalf of Milton, but there was a little bit, you know, there, there was the conflict about the science of detecting phosphorus in the human body because as Miss Mayday was saying, like, obviously, this is all kind of a growing exercise. We are still in the late 1800s. We're still working on chemistry as a whole. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of any time that you start introducing a science into a court of law, you kind of have to have the methods be understood by the jury.
0: Yeah. And then and they have to be vetted. It was vetted. a little bit difficult. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, but they were successful and it took six weeks after a trial that lasts for six weeks. It took them 35 minutes for Milton to be found guilty of first degree murder. And he was sentenced to hang. He appealed to the Supreme Court and waited. Now, that's not all that was happening because a year and a half later on October 23rd, 1887, a man had gotten a room at a boarding house at 42 Geary Street from landlady, Mrs. Higson. He elected to stay in room 21. But so basically he went to her, he said, I want room 21. She says, it's not available. The next day, a different man went and said, I want to stay in room 21. She said, it's not available, but it's available tomorrow. If you want to put a deposit on it today, he said, okay, put the deposit down. And now it was his room. So this didn't end well because a couple of days after this, uh, Mrs. Higson went into the room to clean it. And there was a dead male in room 21. Okay. So, but she noted it was neither of the two men who had asked to stay in room 21. So it wasn't the guy who put the deposit down, nor was it the guy the day before. Okay. So this is a third De- independent male. Yeah. Who was that was found dead. In, yeah. So keep in mind, we're still on Milton's story. So this dead man was found with a bottle of cyanide potassium, a closed bottle of cyanide potassium, a bottle of whiskey, and a suicide note written in triplicate. And the letter was a confession that this man, this decedent, was the one who killed Cecilia, his sister. So remember how I said that Henry was by Cecilia's bedside throughout her final illness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this man had written a suicide note confessing that he was the one that poisoned her. Okay. He also stated he wanted to kill Milton. It all started because he wanted to kill Milton because he hated him so much, but his sister discovered the plan, so he poisoned her instead. Okay. This is now, odd and strange. So this is a year and a
0: half after Milton is sentenced? Yes. Okay. So
1: he's he's waiting for the appeals process. Okay. He's waiting for his appeal to be he- heard by the Supreme Court, and that is when Henry is found dead. His brother-in-law. Suicide note. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So now- Circumstances alone make this kind of shady, but remember how I said that the cyanide was tightly closed? Right. Now, I believe that we have talked about cyanide before in a previous episode. Yes, but just generally. how long it takes to like die from it or like symptoms or...
0: Right. So cyanide poisoning can actually occur pretty rapidly. It can really depends on obviously how you're being poisoned with cyanide, but if it's ingested or inhaled, it could be fast acting and it's because of the fact how cyanide works. So remember we talked about this with regards to executions. So cyanide interferes with the body's ability to use oxygen. So it leads to swift impact to your organs and your vital functions as in breathing. So you can actually die of cyanide poison within minutes or hours, depending on the exposure. But inhalation of cyanide gas or ingestion of concentrated cyanide can lead to rapid onset of symptoms and a swift progression to unconsciousness and then death.
1: So we have a tightly closed cyanide bottle and apparently his body wasn't just like slumped there. The body was laid in bed in a coffin, quotes, coffin type manner, which is, you know, those old Dracula movies where they sleep with like their arms across their chest. Yeah. That's how he was found. Okay. Okay. And finally, the pen that was with the letters, so the only pen in the room that could have possibly written the letters, mm-hmm. had never been used. Okay. Which I'm assuming that means that they were like the inkwell pens that you can tell. Yes. Okay? Like, yes. So you can again- tell that with like a ballpoint.
0: In 1887, this is the year, right? His body is discovered. In 1887, dip pens were the most common writing instruments during that time. And so a dip pen consists of a handle or holder made of like wood or metal with a metal nib as the writing end. And that nib is the like pointed part of the pen that comes in contact with the paper, right? And in order to write on paper, you have to dip the pen into an ink well or an ink bottle. And you saturate the nib with ink, and then it uses like a capillary action where the nib draws the ink inside. And then as it makes contact with the paper, the writer can make, you know, written words. And dip pens require periodic re-dipping into the ink because, you know, the ink flow will get depleted while you write. So again, if it was used, there would be ink in the nib. So, they can tell that this was unused
1: because the metal nib was inkless. So, and then finally, Henry's friends told police that was not his writing. Right. right. So, all of that together and the timing and who it was, everything's getting real suspicious here. Yeah, so it seems what are the co-
0: staged, right?
1: A li- little bit. So, what are the <laughs> coincidences that Milton's retrial is happening right when Henry confesses and Henry is no longer available to testify against him? Okay which is another thing that was a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, police, again, they are not letting anything slip through the cracks, and they decided to check Milton's visitor records Mm -hmm. at the jail, and it showed that the nurse, Charlotte Zeising, and his maid, Teresa Farrell, had gone there daily to visit him upon his incarceration. Okay. This is notable because Teresa's husband was John Dimmig, who also went to see him from time to time. This piqued inspector's interest, went back to the rooming house to ask if one of the men who asked to rent room 21 was John Dimmig, which she confirmed he was the second man that put the deposit down for room 21. Okay. So we've got a whole bunch of connections happening. Now, when questioned, John said that he rented the room to liaise with a woman from San Jose, but that it fell through and he had no clue how Henry wound up in the room that he had rented. It is also noted that prior to Henry's, I'm calling it, murder, mm-hmm. John had gone to the pharmacy of Dr. Lacey and purchased 25 grains of cyanide potassium to, quote, treat his skin ailment, unquote.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So a lo- lot of connections happening. Yeah. So A lot of John random ra- coincidences. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? So John was arrested mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was brought to trial. But his first trial jury actually ended in a deadlock. And the second trial was an acquittal. Weird. So, now this is based on the conflicting testimony of handwriting experts and of the alleged confession notes. So, now with Henry's death essentially being declared a suicide with a confession of killing Cecilia, the Supreme Court felt that there was no way that they could bring Milton to trial for her murder.
0: Oh, wow. So, like,
1: yeah, mm-hmm. the plan worked. And eight months after Henry's death, Milton was released. Wow. He, yeah, here's the... More crazy part, he went back to practicing medicine, like because he had no reason to have his medical license revoked. Insanity. Yep. So he moved to San Jose to marry fourth wife, Mary Bird, a school teacher, and he died in 1904, leaving at least one of his wives to outlive him. Okay. So, wow. That's Milton. But interesting. You know how much we hate the short little episodes. And so. And unfortunately, there are plenty more people who are murdered with phosphorus.
0: Yeah. Because phosphorus is an interesting thing.
1: (laughs) It is. And like what's also like the more we started looking into this, it reminded me a lot of the radium girls that we covered. Yeah. Because they weren't aware of this like the toxicity. Right. Of this wonderful new element that they found that glows and it sparks fire when it's oxidized and things like that. And so they actually did develop. Something pretty cool using phosphorus. Right. Hence the joke at the beginning. Right. Matches.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs>
1: so, the
0: manufacturing process of white phosphorus matches, so this is the match head, right? That actually will light and become fire, right? And so, it involved dipping wooden sticks into a mixture of white phosphorus, glue, and other chemicals and so of course in the manufacturing of matches it requires workers to make the matches right. and so interesting and weird and you know sad fact because of this process where workers were using toxic fumes and vapors coming off of the white phosphorus especially when they were ignited to dry them the workers frequently inhaled these fumes and had direct contact with phosphorus through their skin and over time due to the chronic exposure to white phosphorus which we know now is highly toxic
1: and keep in mind this is again before there was workplace safety regulations and you know hours that you could work per day because this is before radium girls even happened
0: yeah there was this occurrence that was happening and debilitating a lot of the match workers, and it was known as Fosse Jaw. So Fosse Jaw is phosphorus necrosis of the jaw, and it like was this thing that marked match industries during the 19th and early 20th centuries. So initially, early symptoms of Fosse Jaw are mild, And they can be commonly mistaken for dental issues like a toothache or gum inflammation. So workers would experience pain and sensitivity in their teeth and gums. And then as the disease progressed, because they're continuing to work in the factory and they're continuing to be exposed to the fumes and the white phosphorus, their jawbone would start to deteriorate. And then it would become like swollen and painful and it would start to discharge like a pus the decay would eventually lead to the formation of abscesses and openings and things they call fistulas in the skin. Basically, it's like a zombie (laughs) effect. It just rots away in the jaw. And you can see the bone like through the skin. It causes obviously severe pain. You can't eat, and it facially just disfigures you. This is what they used in match production. And unfortunately, it took a long time for it to be connected specifically to the white phosphorus. So a lot of people were impacted by this and, you know, they all had their teeth fall out and literally their, their jaw bones would glow, right? Because we know that phosphorus causes yes. glowing. And it was basically one of the things like the radium girls that led to changes in the workplace specifically when it came to workplace safety laws. So
1: weren't one of the brands called like Lucifer matches? Yeah.
0: So the word Lucifer comes from originally when phosphorus was discovered. It was also called Lucifer. And that's based on the fact that it would glow because the word Lucifer, the origins of that is light. Right. And so because it was luminescent, phosphorus was also referred to as Lucifer.
2: Okay.
1: And those were actually, they had to be banned in 1906 because people were not using them as just matches alone. Oh, really? What yeah, else were they using them for? Women. Well, some people would soak the matches in wine or brandy, and they were used by some women to induce an abortion. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Speaking of
0: yeah. all of the weird applications of phosphorus, right? We'll talk a little it, bit oh, more about that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So like it's things like that that you're just like, okay, so- Just letting you know the prevalence of phosphorus at the time, Mm -hmm. that it really wasn't that hard to get your hands on some as well. Right. I mean, all you had to do is stockpile some matches and you're good to go. Right. So, Cecilia's murder by phosphorus was not an anomaly, and that's evident by the next case we're going to cover, which is at Lemonston Mental Asylum, which was built by the Metropolitan Asylums Board at Abbott's Langley in Buckinghamshire, (laughs) (laughs) because- it all has to be, like, very wordy, and that was to serve North London. Okay. Now, this asylum covered 76 acres and was all new buildings when it opened in 1870, and it was put in place to house, I'm quoting this, quiet and harmless imbeciles, quote, and it had over 1,500 patients. I hate how they used to call people that. Yeah. that's just me. Yeah. And the reason that I segue into that, because 19-year-old Carolyn Ansell had been committed there and she was one of five children. One of her sisters had passed around seven years before she was committed and then tragedy befell them at this point. Now, Carolyn's sister, Mary Ann Ansell, was born November 18, 1877 in Greater London, England. She was a domestic servant at a boarding house in Great Quorum Street. Bloomsbury in 1899 at the age of 20. She decided to treat her sister in Ward 7 of the asylum, so she baked her a cake. She wrapped it in brown paper and sent it to her March 9th, 1899. Carolyn was overjoyed and ate the cake at tea time and shared it with some of her friends in Ward 7. And this ward was actually the epilepsy ward, so it's not, like, there was nothing wrong with them. Like, they they were just there because their family didn't know how to treat epilepsy. Mm -hmm. But because it was her cake, she consumed the majority of the cake herself. You know, I'm willing to share the same thing, but, you know, I'm going to make sure I'm I satisfied first. Yeah.
0: Her sister made so, her this cake, so.
1: Exactly. It's my mm-hmm. cake. You're lucky enough to get a bite. And that's kind of what happened. And unfortunately, that was the decision that she made, which is probably how I would wind up getting murdered myself. Because later that evening, all who ate the cake fell violently ill. But Carolyn was the only one who did not make it through the illness alive. Okay. Now, it didn't seem like it was natural causes because she was perfectly fine. And everyone that shared the cake with her also fell ill. So common denominator, the cake. Mm-hmm. Police traced the cake back to Mary, but why would Mary kill her sister? It appears money and love. Mary had a lover or fiance, I heard it reported both ways, who they wanted to wait to get married until they were financially stable. Well, Mary made this happen. She took out a life insurance policy on her sister the previous September, and she claimed it was so that way she could provide her sister with a proper burial if she did happen to pass. Now, her passing happened sooner than later, and she followed this up with the purchase of rat poison containing phosphorus near where she worked. Mm-hmm. So again, rat poison. Now, this was a coincidence as an examination of Carolyn showed that she had been poisoned by phosphorus. Mary claimed that she had purchased the rat poison to kill rats at the house where she worked. Remember, she was a domestic servant, but her boss, Mrs. Maloney, told police they didn't have a rat problem. She never told her to go purchase the poison. And this day and age, you're not going to go out and purchase something willy nilly because you don't have the spare money to do it. Mm -hmm. So you aren't purchasing it unless your boss is telling you and giving you the money to do Mm -hmm. it. She was officially put on trial June 30th, and the trial only took two days the shop assistant who sold her the poison testified along with the proof of the life insurance policy and the cake delivery and the handwriting on the packaging of the cake. And it was pretty open and shut. She was sentenced to death, but of note the prison where she was to be hanged did not have their own gallows. So they needed to borrow one from nearby Bedford prison. The execution was carried out. And even though there was numerous backwards for clemency on her behalf, based on possible mental health issues, her age, And her status in society, none of it worked. She was actually hanged in St. Albans Prison the morning of July 19th, 1899. The crowd outside waited for the raising of the black flag. And at this time, it was not to a cheering crowd. Some were even kneeling and praying for her. Mm -hmm. So this is one of those rare occurrences where a murderer, they did not want them to be sentenced Mm -hmm. to death. She was the last woman to be hanged in the 19th century and the youngest to that date To be hanged in private. Mm -hmm. So there was another Mary who also did not like to wait for nature to take its course. Mary Elizabeth Cassidy was born June 11th, 1889 in Catchgate, Stanley County, Durham. She fell hard for a chimney sweep named John Knowles in 1912. And that was while she was working for a local family. They moved to Wendy Nook in Gatehead. And over the course of four decades, the couple would have six kids, three boys and three girls. Two of those girls did die in their infancy, and that was really common at the time. And this marriage was brought to a tragic end because John fell ill and died in 1955 from what doctors said was tuberculosis. And Mary was now a single mother. But she was not fully alone because before John Knowles had passed, they brought in a boarder, John Russell. He was a painter and he moved into the home. And so Mary kind of like leaned on him in the aftermath. He was now the man of the house. Mm so heavily that the two became lovers and married five months later. Okay. So things are looking up for Mary until John Russell also passed after an illness in 1956. So her husband dies 1955. She is then remarried and her new husband dies in 1956. Okay. So really fast turnaround on that one. So she was willing to make do on her inheritance after his passing of 42 pounds for a while until she found her third husband, Oliver Leonard, in 1957. So 55, 56, 57. We are that fast. She was 64. He was 75. He was a retired real estate agent. And 12 days later, she called upon her neighbor as Oliver had become very ill. The neighbor headed over and told Mary that it looked bad and she needed to call a doctor. The next morning, he had died. She was again left with nothing more than an inheritance from a life insurance policy until she met fourth husband, retired engineer Ernest George Lawrence Wilson. And that was later the same year. Oh, my gosh. He was 76. Okay. So she's 64. He's 76. She was probably hoping this would be the final husband when they married and her string of bad luck would be over. She even went so far to joke at their wedding reception that she should hold the leftover sandwiches and cakes for the next funeral. Because they happen so fast. Yikes, that's (laughs) you you know not a
0: great joke.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, she must have been a prophet because he made it less than a year as well. Hmm. She had called the doctor November twelfth, nineteen fifty-seven, because he had fallen ill, but when the physician arrived, they did not find an ill man but a dead one. He had a history of heart problems, so the doctor concluded that his death was caused by heart disease. Now, at this point, she made another joke, this time at the register's office, that they should start giving her a discount for all the business that she brings them. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: No, she didn't even go to his funeral. So, well, I guess it takes four times for this gossip mill to get going because the fourth death was enough to have the police think that exhumation must be necessary for her final two husbands, and they were exhumed and given autopsies. Okay, after four... Times mm-hmm. of this happening mm-hmm. within, within a year,
0: basically. Within
1: four, husband number one died in ni- 40 years of marriage, mind you. Husband number one dies in 1955, and she is married and widowed three more times by
0: 1957. Yeah. So <laughs> okay, so they exhumed the bodies, and this is kind of an interesting thing because it's like, how do you detect phosphorus poisoning post mortem? from an autopsy, or basically after exhumation. It can be challenging. There are certain tests and kind of procedures that we can utilize to identify the presence of phosphorus. But it's interesting because at this time, they're still thinking that phosphorus poisoning by rat poisoning is rare. However, it's highly marketed and very, very common to find. So people have access to it so it makes it a kind of an ideal thing to use <laughs> because you can buy it and be kind of undetected right. there. So rat poison contains phosphorus, and but specifically it contains zinc phosphide or aluminum phosphide. And so you are looking for these two kind of compounds. And during an autopsy, so before exhumation, if there's an autopsy performed, you can detect this macroscopically just by doing like an external and internal exam of the body. And you're looking for signs of corrosion and burns in the mouth, esophagus, and stomach. And then you're looking for anything in the stomach contents that looks like it's someone has ingested the phosphorus. So if it's like food that's been laced with it, that's kind of what you're looking for inside the stomach contents. And you can analyze those stomach contents. You can also do this by looking at tissue samples that are taken during the autopsy can examine them underneath the microscope and phosphorus poisoning has basically tissue is marked by necrosis. So it causes cell death and inflammation, which you can see underneath a microscope. There's also toxicological testing. So blood and tissue samples are collected and analyzed for the presence of phosphorus and its metabolites. And the toxicology can kind of show and detect the levels of Phosphorus and its metabolites to help confirm the poison. And this is done through instrumental analysis on, like, GCMS, for example. And it can quantify and identify specifically what forms of phosphorus are present and in what quantity. And so all of these things are kind of ways and tools at autopsy, as well as after the body has been exhumed, how at the coroner's office they can detect the use of phosphorus poisoning, because obviously you're looking for specific compounds containing phosphorus that are consistent with rat poison, for example, and then they're looking at the quantity. So high quantities of stuff that are not consistent with normal metabolic breakdown of naturally occurring phosphate in a human body.
1: Well, in this case, it was determined that they both had died from phosphorus poisoning, but little was known about phosphorus poisoning still at this point. So her defense alleged that the two men both must have been consuming sexual <laughs> enhancement pills that contained the element.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, bec-
1: Remember how we were talking about medications and how people just don't know? Yeah. Them?
0: And how this is common in history. Whenever there's like a weird new element that's discovered, we just, and we're like, oh, look at these cool properties. And then we, for whatever reason, as humans, just think that they can become medicines And cure-alls to all sorts of weird ailments. And so – Of course they can. Phosphorus was one of those things. Back in 1710, as early as 1710, which is one of the first medically recorded uses of phosphorus, it was something that was distributed by a man named Johann Link, who was a German apothecary, and he sold them as pills containing 200 milligrams of yellow phosphorus. And they were protected from the atmosphere because again, remember when it's exposed to oxygen, it ignites. It was protected by a surface layer of gold or silver. And he was marketing them as something called Kunkel pills to treat colic, asthma, fevers, tetanus, gout. So again, all sorts of things. Of course, things. it's a catch-all. He named them... Künkel pills after Johann Künkel, which was a German chemist who continued to work on using basically phosphorus in a wide variety of applications and chemical experimentation. So I think he backpacked on legitimate scientific research by using Johann Künkel's name to market these pills in this Snake oil scheme, essentially.
1: <laughs> well, this was that whole thing with the radium when they used the Curie name.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah, um, exactly. And so, this is how people are tricked into thinking that this is legitimate because, dude, there is a scientist that is researching mm-hmm. phosphorus and like it's used in this medical application. So, it must be legitimate, right? So that was one of it's earliest like recorded medical uses, quote unquote medical uses of phosphorus over time. Again, you know, as with lots of these elements, they start getting widely applied to other things, one of which is used in impotence. So I don't know why, but again, it's very common to see sort of all of these weird elements being used as aphrodisiacs and things that are supposed to help With sexual potency. And so, yes, at some point, phosphorus is then marketed to men to increase their virility. And I think these are also in pill form, but they advise that one grain should be taken per day. Mm -hmm. And then one of their preparations involved emulsifying that phosphorus with like almonds and mixing it with a bunch of other things like cod, liver oil, right? So we see all these methods of mixing it and like changing the flavor of it um, so that it is more, you know, easily digested and eaten.
1: I was just picturing, you said that it had the smell of garlic. So all these men walking around with garlic breath trying to get laid. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So in fact – just going to put this on the record. In fact, elemental phosphorus has no effect on virility. It will not restore potency to the impotent, and it will not have any positive effect for those who are taking it for, you know, cough, cold, gout, whatever it has ever been marketed
1: as. It will only ever harm you <laughs> because it is. We are not medical professionals if anybody wants to refute this, but. From the science. It
0: is toxic. It is absolutely toxic. Like arsenic and all the other things and compounds that we have historically tried to make as cure alls, they do not do that, right? And so it is not advised to consume phosphorus ever. But this is what happened. And as you were saying, Mr. Ruby Wild, earlier, it was also marketed as a way to abort a fetus, right? Mm-hmm. And so women would scrape off the heads of lots of matches at the time because matches were being sold with white phosphorus heads and they were told to consume the match heads and that would basically abort the the fetus but it would also essentially kill the mothers right but again this was because women towards the end of the 19th century you know they needed a way to cure quote unquote their pregnancies and they could not resort to any other legitimate me- medical form. And so this was one of the ways that they they thought they could do this relatively safely, which as we know now is not safe at all. No. They did studies on this to see like how tragic this was. And there was a study that was conducted in Sweden and in Sweden between 1851 and 1903, they recorded over 1400 Cases of this, like white phosphorus match head poisoning in women, only 10 mothers survived.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, it's a bad idea. Bad idea. So, to say the least. So, with the defense saying, you know, it was probably just the sexual harassment or why do I keep wanting to (laughs) say (laughs) enhancement? Sexual enhancement pills. But they actually went further in the testing and they discovered wheat green in addition to the phosphorus, and that's what's commonly used in beetle and rat poison to entice the rats and the beetles to eat the poison. Mm -hmm. So it's like the flavoring, and so with the two together. So the jury did not believe in all these coincidences that were happening, and she was convicted of murdering both these final two husbands with the poison. Mm -hmm. So after her conviction, they decided to exhume her first two husbands as well, and it was discovered that both of them had also been poisoned. So she did wind up killing all four of her husbands. Okay. She was sentenced to death, being the last woman to have this honor in 1958 in Durham. But that was commuted to life in prison because of her age. And she did die from natural causes December 5th, 1962, at the age of 70 in Holloway Prison. Okay. So they pretty much said, it's a waste of money for us to kill you since you're going to die soon anyway. And she did wind up dying within four years. And
0: this was in England, right? And again, they had
1: abolished the death penalty. Yeah, because this was Durham County, so I don't know when they finally abolished that. Can't remember. Um, it was in the 60s. So oh, okay. So yeah.
0: yeah, this came up in the last episode. The peer the points, the peer points yeah. yeah. And so I think around this time, right, they're trying to kind of commute some of these sentences so that they weren't death penalty cases, and that that's how she got converted to life in prison. Gotcha. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, the final case also happened in the 1950s, and this was done as well with rodine, which is the rat. It's a brand. Yes, rodine is a
0: brand of rat poison. It's a box tin, and it has really distinct packaging. It's like the little red box with the word rodine on it. And yeah, it was, like I said, commonly found in the store, easy to purchase, and it contained the highly toxic yellow phosphorus. Yeah, and it's lethal to humans.
1: Yep. 79-year-old Sarah Ann Ricketts needed to hire help in March of 1953. So she put an ad in the classifieds, quote, well, I'm, you know what? I would love to quote this, but it won't make sense unless you see it in front of you. But it basically says, responsible woman or couple shared furnished house for rent for service to lady, 339 Devonshire Road, Blackpool. Of course, everything's abbreviated because she had to pay by the letter.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Mrs. Louise Merrifield and her husband, Alfred, thought this job was perfect, and they were hired as housekeeper and handyman, respectively. And Sarah would soon realize her folly for not looking at their references, because within weeks, she was not being fed enough. All her money was being wasted by the couple on alcohol. Sarah was not the sort to be able to look past the flaws, and she or was the sort, and she actually befriended Louise. It's either Louisa or Louise. I've seen it written both ways. So I'm going to go with Louisa. Okay. And that's because Sarah was lonely. She was twice over widowed. Both of her husbands had committed suicide by gassing themselves. So, the you know, you sit in your car, uh-huh. the car exhaust. Carbon monoxide poisoning? Um, yeah. Hmm. They they said gassing. I, okay. I went with All it. Right. Um, so this is kind of their bonding point because by this point, Louisa herself had also lost two of her husbands. So though they appeared to be friends, locals found it strange that... Louisa was out drinking in pubs until she could no longer stand. But you meaning that she wasn't taking care of her employer when she was at the pub and she definitely wasn't taking care of her once she went home. Mm-hmm,
0: Cause she was drunk. And yeah, all so and an awful lot of like dead husbands in this time period uh-huh. as well. Yeah.
1: yeah. And it, it's by all, the way, you know, it's totally whether all, suicide you know, like, oh. or
0: homicide, just dead husbands, a lot of dead husbands,
1: yeah. you know, it, it happens, you know, and it's bonding. If you're twicely widowed with somebody else, Okay. So unbeknownst to all, Sarah had recently revised her will, leaving the bungalow that they were all sharing to Louisa. And this was backed by Dr. Ewell on April 9th, who declared that Sarah was of sane mind when she made this addition to the will. Okay. Why somebody thought that that was necessary to call in a doctor to verify this, unknown. But it is known that it appeared to happen just in time because Sarah died in the evening of April 14th. Louisa actually left her there until the next morning. She said she didn't feel the need to bother a doctor for a dead woman.
0: Mm. Okay. So Now it kind of makes sense why one would um, seek a doctor to proclaim publicly that she was of sane mind when she
1: changed the will. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the next morning, it's unclear what finally tipped off the investigation into her death, but one did occur. So, you know doctor was called in she was dead okay this is a 79 year old woman Mm -hmm. but something happened behind the scenes that tipped off an investigation okay none that i could find solidly like plenty of anecdotes assumptions Mm -hmm. yeah so either way the investigation occurred she had already been examined by the doctor the previous day who diagnosed her with mild bronchitis It was also noted April 12th, Louisa told her friend, Jesse Brewer, that she had to return home to lay out an old woman. Jesse asked who died, and Louisa replied, no one yet, but soon. Okay. So after Sarah's death, Jesse went to the police. So that could have been what sparked it, or it could have been the police asking for information about it, and Jesse felt the need to go to the police. So by April 20th, police investigation was in full swing and they visited chemists and grocers around the area and they investigated what Louisa had told friends and the new will. So it's becoming, it's like gaining momentum and it started becoming a high profile media sensation. And the papers started digging into Louisa's history at this point. Mm -hmm. She was, she was the rage. So Louisa was born Louisa May Highway in 1906. She was the youngest surviving daughter of seven children. Her father worked at local coal mines in 1931 when Louisa was 25. She married Joseph Ellison, who was 24, while she was working as a Salvation Army captain. They had six children together, but two died in their infancy. That sounds a lot like the previous case. Yeah. Six children and yeah. Mm -hmm. So in 1946, she was found guilty of ration book fraud. Yes. So
0: ration book fraud is something that's referring to this very specific time period. This was around World War II, right? And rationing was a system that was implemented by a lot of countries, including the United States, the United Kingdom, and all the other allied nations. And it was a way of managing and distributing essential goods, such as food, fuel, clothing, and other commodities that were in short supply due to the demands of the war effort. So rationing aimed to ensure that everyone had access to these necessities. And it was meant to prevent like hoarding and inflation and and just overall shortages. Like let's equally distribute things out or ration them, right? And so they did this through the use of ration books, which were issued to individuals and families. And the books contained little coupons or tokens that you could exchange for specific quantities of whatever that item was, like flour, for example. And each person's ration book, was associated with their name, their address, basically their identity. And so fraud refers to these illegal practices that individuals started utilizing to manipulate the rationing system for personal gain. So one way to do this was counterfeiting ration coupons. So people would produce fake ration coupons that could be used to acquire more ration goods than they were allowed They were very difficult to distinguish and like detect these counterfeit coupons. Another way that people were committing fraud was multiple registrations. So some individuals might register under a different name and a different address to receive multiple sets of ration books, again, allowing them to obtain more goods than they should be receiving. There was also theft. So people would just straight up steal other people's ration books And then there was hoarding that was happening. So you could somehow obtain large quantities of a rationed item. This is obviously through the use of other fraudulent means like counterfeiting, for example, or stolen ration booklets. They could then resell some of these at a higher cost or just you know trading it and bartering it for other things
1: oh you mean like the toilet paper hoarders during COVID? yeah
0: sort of in a black market yeah. way where like suddenly all these mm-hmm. items are like 10 times expensive and you can only get them in ebay or something you know mm-hmm. it's something like that jerks
1: if you did that screw you so
0: this is all generally called ration book fraud so okay so this gotcha. is what she did i guess
1: She did in 1946, and so because of this, and she was found guilty, she had all four children removed from her and her husband's custody. She went to prison to serve her sentence because she refused to pay the fine, and she served 84 days. Her children did not seem to hold any ill will towards her forever because she actually maintained relationships with them. So they they were never actually returned to her custody, but she continued to be in contact with them. Her husband, Joseph, died from subacute infective hepatitis at the age of 44 in October of 1949. Okay. Again, another serial monogamist. She didn't stay single for long, and husband number two was fellow widower Richard Weston. He was 78 when they married in 1950. Now, this marriage was not a long one because he died 10 weeks later. So, yeah, we're in a deja vu Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah this is very similar to a lot of the other cases we've heard about.
1: Yes. So according to records, he died from natural causes, which Louisa claimed was caused by their bed collapsing and gave him a shock. So because he was so old, he was 78. She said that when their bed broke and fell, it was like a panic and it caused him to die. Okay. All right. So husband number three came when she was 44 and he was 68. And this is Alfred, the one from the beginning of the story. Mm -hmm. And that was Alfred Edward Merrifield and their wedding took place that same year. He was also a widower because his wife Alice Whittle died in 1949. But they weren't really together when she died. He abandoned her and their ten children in 1928.
0: Oh my god. What was so, with people back then? I have
1: I don't know. I don't know. Like he <sighs> just he literally he had ten children with her and in 1928 left, never went back, never divorced, nothing. Yeah. So was he technically a widower? Yeah, because you know she did die, but he was a dirtbag. Okay. So back to the time leading up to Sarah's death and the checking of references. Louisa actually had twenty different jobs between 1950 and 1953, fired from every one for poor attitude, laziness, and unproven theft. So had she just checked a little? Yeah. Poor woman. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so Louisa had attempted to have Sarah cremated quickly, but she had an autopsy first, and that showed that she had indeed been poisoned. Her autopsy showed bran, as we mentioned, and 0.042 grains, or 2.7 milligrams of phosphorus in her stomach. Uh-huh. Her intestines had 0.0999 grains, or 6.4 milligrams. Yeah. So this is common makeup of the that rhodine poison mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. time. So, April 30th, Louisa was in custody and charged with Sarah's murder. Her husband was arrested the following month. And what was stated at the trial was that Sarah was very fond of jam and rum. Like, so fond of jam, she would be eating it by the spoonful straight out of the jar. That was her meal. Okay. So, they said that the rhodine could easily have been consumed in either of the mediums mm-hmm. because it would have hidden the flavor. Right. Because the jam was so sweet and, and the, the rum. rum. They have such strong mm-hmm. flavors. Yeah. So, and the actual poison box was never found. Okay. Regardless, Louisa was found guilty and sentenced to death. Alfred was found not guilty. So Louisa was hanged by the famous Albert Pierpont. Pierpoint. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, we thought that this was a good second case to that one. And this was with his assistant, Robert Leslie Stewart, September 18th, 1953, at the Strange Ways Prison, which is kind of a fun name, Strange Ways. Yeah,
0: it's no longer referred to as Strange Ways Prison. It was officially changed to HMP Manchester, but that's because this prison is located in Manchester, England. But Strange Ways Prison is interesting. Again, all of the prisons in England are kind of interesting just because of their really, really historic nature. They're very old jails. This one in particular was designed by a very prominent Victorian architect named Alfred Waterhouse, and the prison was constructed and built between 1868 and 1875. It was officially opened in 1868, and this was as a re- response to the need for a more like modern and humane prison, because this prison, Strange Ways Prison, replaced the outdated New Bailey Prison. So remember the the Bailey yeah. from previous episodes in the past when we talked about prisons and executions in England. But this prison was more modern and humane in the sense that during the Victorian era, it was designed based on these principles of a separate system, which aimed to isolate prisoners from one another to prevent further corruption and to facilitate reform. So the architecture of the prison was designed to have separate cells for each prisoner. And then there was a central hub for surveillance. And then there was a large central exercise yard. So this was kind of the...
1: So was it like they were spokes almost on a wheel? Is that kind of how it was?
0: Sort of, yeah. So it was circular... So if you look up the, yeah. the the prison itself and the architecture of it, I don't know if you recall from our previous conversations about prisons, but there's like that central circular area in the middle of it. Yeah. And they, yeah. it does come off as wings from it. And-
1: I wasn't sure if I was like remembering another one or if I was just like making up that this one. That or- was a different-
0: prison, I believe, but they were all kind of designed with a similar aesthetic only because again, it was based on this principle of separate systems, right? So, and this occurred in the Victorian era. Over the years, Strangeways underwent lots of changes and updates to obviously accommodate and evolve to the new penal philosophies and also to changing attitudes towards criminal justice and reform, right? You know, like all prisons, it faced overcrowding. And then that's kind of at the point in which it shifted again. There was there was a riot and (laughs) and this was all because of like the overcrowding. And so that's essentially what changes Strange Ways Prison rebrands as HMP Manchester in the modern 20th century. But yeah, this interesting history of hanging at Strange Ways, right, speaking of Albert Pierpont. So the first person that was hanged at this prison when it was newly constructed was in March of 1869, and that was the hanging of Martin Johnson. And then the last hanging in Strange Ways was in 1964 of Gwyn Owens Evans, That was basically the end of the death penalty because capital punishment at that time in Manchester and the whole of UK was outlawed at that
1: point. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, this Alfred, there's so many Alfreds, Alfred that designed the prison, Alfred that did the hanging at the prison. Oh, that's Albert. Oh, Albert. Sorry. Okay. So, well, this Alfred, the surviving Louisa's final husband, actually had a battle with Sarah's children, Sarah the victim, about who rightfully owned the bungalow because of the will. Oh, yes. It was put in Louisa's
0: name, correct?
1: Yes, but he was married to Mm Louisa. So when Louisa is not able to take it anymore, he believed he should rightfully have ownership of the bungalow. Mm -hmm. Her children were like, why are you profiting off of your wife murdering our mother? Mm Mm-hmm. Either way, long story short, they actually, they wind up settling and Alfred did stay in the home. Okay. Through whatever means. And then he actually tried to, not tried, he successfully, he would sell some of Louise's clothes to wax figure museums. He would sell his stories of his, you know, of his wife murdering. And he would actually proclaim that he was innocent until he died in 1962 at the age of 60. But, like, he profited off of what his wife did to Sarah. Yeah. Regardless if he was involved or not. Right. He, it's what he did. Yeah. Um, and that's – that's the. I mean, it's definitely not the only phosphorus murders, but <laughs> those are the connected ones. We'll put it that way. Yes. Okay. But yeah, so, to wrap up this episode, because – I like to make elemental jokes periodically. (laughs) Oh, puns. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Mayday, what do you call someone who poisons your breakfast? I don't know what. A serial killer. Yes. (laughs) Got it.
0: (laughs) I like that. That's cute.
1: (laughs) All right, everybody. We will talk to you next time.
0: All right. See you next time. Vintage Homicide is produced and edited by your hosts. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. Follow him at The Real Matt Beck on Instagram. Thank you for joining us. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.
2: us right now. Welcome to Cryptic Soup. I'm Thina. And I'm Kylie. We wanted to say hey and tell you about our podcast. It's a podcast we both host where we talk crimes, cryptids, murders, and a lot of wild stuff in between. You can find Mothman, Jeffrey Dahmer, SeaWorld, Spectrophilia, Casey Anthony, or even Skinwalker Ranch to be just a few of the crazy topics we cover. We even do some fun urban legends to make you feel like a kid at the campfire again. We're just two best friends hanging out diving into all the things that your co-workers think you're a weirdo for wanting to talk about we have a new episode every Tuesday at 3am Eastern Standard Time and we're always open for case suggestions our Instagram is at Pod, where our DMs are always open so slide on in we always want to hear your opinions about any cases and episodes we cover you can find our episodes on Spotify Apple Podcast and most podcasting platforms at Cryptic Soup Pod. The menu is always overflowing with crazy topics you'll want to hear about. So join the conversation today and come hang out with us. Stay tuned.